Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Organ and Tissue Donation in partnership with Donate Life. I'm your host, Michael Billings, and my guest today is Brooke Puskas. Brooke's story is unlike any I've had on the podcast so far, both because she was the recipient of an organ via a living transplant, but also because she's pregnant, which can be very challenging for organ recipients. Stick around for her story, but before I get to that, I want to remind you that I do this podcast in the hope that after listening, you'll do two things. Sign up to become an organ donor at donatelife.gov.au and talk to your family about your desire to be an organ donor. Both those things are as important as each other and just one organ or tissue donor can transform the lives of many people. I'll remind you at the end of the episode, but for now, here's Brooke Huskus to tell us about her journey. Brooke, thanks for joining me today. Where does the story start for you? I think uh, it starts from when I was born, actually. I kind of, I was born with a kidney disease. It's a genetic kidney disease called reflux nephropathy. And my disease didn't get picked up until I was seven, which was really uncommon. Uh, Usually it gets picked up earlier in childhood. And so once we found out I had my kidney disease, I had to have an an operation to try and fix it, um, which was successful. But then because I was seven, my kidneys were already pretty damaged. And as I got older, they just had to work harder and they ended up wearing themselves out. And I ended up in uh, full kidney failure, age of 24, 25. So. Okay, we're skipping well into the story here. I just want to go back for a minute to the period between birth and seven. I don't expect you to remember, but were there warning signs that something was wrong? I was getting recurrent kidney infections. But I was my mom's first baby, and so she just kept taking me to the doctor, and the doctor just kept saying, well, here's some antibiotics to help uh, fix the kidney infection. So mum trusted the doctor, and, and I just kept get, getting put on antibiotics. But I was also getting a lot of bruising on, on the top of my legs, which we now know is uh, is a common sign of kidney problems as well. But I was also learning how to ride a bike at the time, so my parents just thought, oh, Brooke's falling off her bike. (laughs) So didn't really pick up any signs that there was an issue. Uh, Like my mum didn't pick up there was any issue until uh, she was playing squash with a friend who just happened to be a GP. And she mentioned to the GP, she said, oh, Brooke is sick again. And and the GP said, oh, what's what's wrong? And mum said she's got another, you know, kidney infection. And the GP said, well, how many of those has, has Brooke had, you know, knowing that I was not quite seven yet? And uh, mum said, oh, I've lost count. And the GP said, uh, come and see me on Monday. And so from that point on, the GP obviously gave mum a second opinion and said, look, I think there's actually something wrong with Brooke's kidneys. Um, I'm going to refer you on to a urologist. And the urologist did some tests and confirmed that yes I did have uh, reflux in my kidneys and pretty much the next week I was in surgery getting my first surgery to fix that that kidney problem so it all happened very very quickly after that um, initial diagnosis was made like I said because I was a bit older it was a bit more serious and they wanted to get it get it sorted as quickly as they could. So the surgery you had when you were seven you said it couldn't fix the problem because the damage had been done was there somewhat of an improvement at that point for part of your childhood? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, an improvement in my childhood. Um, I guess I wasn't sick anymore, which was good. I wasn't getting the infections anymore. But I did have to then get followed up really closely with um, a paediatrician and a, and a kidney specialist every three months. So it was easier in the sense that I didn't have 
I wasn't getting sick anymore, but I guess that's when my, I guess, kind of health journey and being around doctors all the time kind of really started because they wanted to try and, (laughs) it's funny, they wanted to try and make sure that I didn't end up in full kidney failure by closely monitoring me. But like I said, the damage had already kind of been done and, and ultimately I did end up in kidney failure. How were your teenage years? I mean, was there stuff that you were missing out on because of the condition you had? Not really. It's a silent disease. So my body was slowly working harder and harder to, you know, work properly. But the the main side effect of that was tiredness. And because I didn't know what it was like not to be tired, I didn't, you know, really know any difference. So um, the only thing I do remember a very specific time where I had to have 24-hour blood pressure monitoring on me and that meant I had a had a blood pressure cuff on my arm and a little thing attached to my hip and I had to wear it at school and it would blow up every 15 minutes or every hour to take my blood pressure and uh, some kids were laughing at me and so that was the first time that I felt that it was a visible disease that people could see but other than that it's quite silent and you know we didn't know I had kidney disease for the first seven years of my life so yeah, I didn't, I, to be honest, I didn't feel like I missed out on anything when I was a teenager because I think my parents also played a big role in that in, in that they always treated me like a normal kid. They didn't wrap me in cotton wool or bubble wrap or anything like that. They, they really did a great job, I think, at letting me just be a kid. Because throughout all of this, you weren't even on dialysis, were you? No, 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 nope, nope. So um, I was super lucky and I never even went on dialysis. Um, so I, I knew from about 15 that my kidneys would fail. So when I was about 15 years old and it was just like a throwaway line, I used to say to people, oh yeah, one day I'm going to need a kidney transplant without actually realizing the gravity of what that meant, which I don't think you can unless you, you know, go through it or see someone else go through it. And so I, uh, started Like, especially when I got into my 20s, I I really started to try to do things in my life that I thought I wouldn't be able to do after my transplant. So realistically, that just involved a lot of travel. (laughs) I love traveling and scuba diving. And they were the two kind of priorities that I had before my impending transplant. It was like being on a, like some people describe it as like a ticking time bomb or or a a balancing act, you know, on a high wire. You, You just never know when the kidneys are going to fully fail and when you're going to need either dialysis or transplantation. And so I was, yeah, trying to cram as much in my life as I could. And I guess I was lucky I had already finished uni. I'd I'd, I'd, uh, gotten my first job, which meant I could earn a bit of money to go travelling and and do all the things that I wanted to do. And I remember sitting in the room with uh, my nephrologist and my mum and my dad, and they were talking about dialysis. And it just seemed like the scariest thing to me. The thought of being so free to live my life, like I said, traveling and, and scuba diving and traveling the world, and then going to being on a machine three times a week in hospital, you know, who knows what. I would be able to do as a job or if I was even going to be able to have a job. And so the dialysis talk was actually really terrifying for my whole family. And I think it was at that moment that my dad was like, whatever happens, I'm going to donate a kidney to you, which realistically he he's not the one that makes that choice. The doctors are the ones that make that choice. 
Um, and so I was extremely lucky that I guess my doctors got that balancing act right and I was able to get a transplant from my dad before I ever needed to go on dialysis. So I still think that I'm super lucky <laughs> even now. So did you get to the point of kidney failure? Basically, yes, because they needed to do a transplant. It was either we do a transplant or you start dialysis. So kidney failure is kind of less than 10% kidney function. And I think when I got transplanted, I was on about 9% kidney function from my native kidneys. So yeah, if you need dialysis or transplantation, then you've, you've definitely gone into kidney failure. You've taken a real unique way in that you didn't go onto the, the transplant list. Tell me about your old man and him uh, just saying straight up, I'm giving one. You know, it's actually very, I can only describe it as I was really numb to the whole process. Like my emotions were kind of removed from it. I don't know if that was a protective mechanism or maybe I'm weird for, for having that. But And even now when I think about what dad was able to do, I just get so overwhelmed and for a really long time and, and, and still to this day I'm like, oh, I just don't think that thank you is kind of a a good enough word that describes what what organ donation does you know what I mean just seems you know you say thank you to someone who holds an elevator door for you how can that same word be used <laughs> to say thank you for saving my life um so yeah I still get really caught up on that I haven't like repaid dad or, or you know for the amazing gift that he he gave me um but he was very oh of course I'd do it you know, of course, I'd, I'd, I'd give a kidney to my my child as if it was nothing, you know. As a father myself, I know there's nothing you expect of you to repay him. Uh, you're the first person I've spoken to who has received an organ from a living donor, so I don't really know a lot about it. How does him donating one of his kidneys affect his life? Yeah, so, I mean, that was always my worry as well. Wasn't a worry of dad. Dad's like, I don't care what happens to me so long as you're okay. And I'm like, well, I kind of care what happens to you, dad. Like, I don't want to go through this and then not have you around. So they, they say that for living donation, it's almost harder for the living donor because their body has to learn how to survive without a kidney, whereas the recipient didn't really have kidney function and now has this new kidney to, to, to function and they feel great. There's risks with being a living donor, like uh, obviously it's a surgery and the, the risks that come with that. They're at a greater risk of getting like high blood pressure and diabetes afterwards as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot for a, donor, a living donor to put their body through. But dad now, I mean, he's fine. His blood pressure's under control. He He's doing amazingly. The only thing that's had to change is now he has to see a kidney specialist. I think it's once a year. Um, just to make sure his one kidney is still functioning fine. He sounds like a pretty amazing bloke, I reckon. <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> By 25, you're having the transplant. Tell me about the process from going into the hospital, having the operation and waking up from it. I have a few strokes. So my transplant was 10 years ago now, which is an amazing milestone to, to meet and, and look back on. So I don't think I remember all of it, but I remember a few specific things like the hospital bed was uncomfortable and my mum... And my auntie and cousin came up uh, on the day of my transplant and I had to, I was making my cousin give me a back massage because the bed was so uncomfortable. And the feeling before it was just, like I said, I was really numb through the whole thing. I, I, I wasn't anxious. I wasn't happy. I wasn't sad. I was just nothing. Because I think psychologically, I felt like there was nothing wrong with me. 
I think when you're on dialysis, there's a very clear thing, you know, the machine that has to clean your blood for you instead of your own kidneys being able to do it. So it was really weird not having anything to indicate that I was sick beside a blood test. So it was just a really weird, like, I don't know, I was in this haze of, I guess, uncertainty as well, hoping that it would work. I, I distinctly remember the doctor coming in and telling me that my dad was okay and that he his operation was finished. And then waking up from it, I remember they took me for an x-ray and I woke up from the x-ray because uh, I had to stretch my back and I was sore. I don't know. It was just, it was really, really strange. I actually remember the, the porter that pushed me down to to surgery and he was the same guy that brought me back up so it was good to see him a familiar face i'm probably not explaining this very well but it was all just very strange but very protocoly as well and although to be honest in my mind i had no doubts that the transplant would work for some reason i don't know whether that was just a positive thinking or i don't know naivety but i was like it's gonna work you know and it has very successfully That's right, it worked perfectly. And from there, what you've achieved since your transplant is nothing short of phenomenal. Let's start with just a couple of years later. (laughs) Yeah, so I remember going into the work up to my transplant was uh, nearly two years. So dad and I had to jump through a lot of hoops in order to to get the final go-ahead to have the transplant. And I distinctly remember going into the hospital and seeing sick people and thinking, well, I'm not sick. And when I have my transplant, is is this what I'm going to be like? You know, am I going to be sick? And when I wasn't sick after my transplant, I was like, I'm going to do something that proves to myself and the rest of the world that having a transplant is life enabling, not life limiting. Because I was really unsure before my transplant whether or not I could live a normal life. So I decided to go to Africa to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I just had it in my head that that was like a, a a goal, like that would be the thing that I would do that would prove to myself and everyone that a transplant was awesome and transplant recipients could do anything. So, yeah, about a year and a half after my transplant, I packed up and I went on safari in Africa and part of the safari, like the reason that I went on safari was because it was always something Dad and I spoke about as well. We always wanted to go to Africa to see the, the big cats and it was pretty awesome being there and being able to realise this kind of dream that Dad and I had spoken about um, for a long time. And then climbing Killy was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it was really hard. I didn't think I'd make it to the top, but I had an awesome crew around me and the people that I went trekking with, they were awesome. And so, yeah, uh, on my 27th birthday, I I was on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> that is a phenomenal effort. I can't even spell Kilimanjaro, but for you to climb it after a transplant, nothing short of inspiring. Next, you get back from Africa and you actually give back to the kidney community. Tell us about what you did next. Being around doctors for so long, I thought that I wanted to be a doctor. And then I got my first job, which was selling scientific equipment to researchers. And it didn't take me long being in that job to realise that I didn't want to sell scientific equipment to researchers. I wanted to be doing the actual research. So after Kilimanjaro, I came back and I did my honours degree in kidney regeneration at Monash University and then ended up continuing on and doing my PhD. So it was really my way of 
I guess using my skills in science, which I which is something that I'm I'm really passionate about and I really love, to try and find a way to lessen the burden on people who have chronic kidney disease. And that's what my PhD was about. And my job currently, I still do research into into chronic kidney disease. And I believe now you're a lecturer. I am a lecturer, yes. I'm a lecturer in anatomy at uh, La Trobe University. And the reason, like, I find anatomy so fascinating, but it's amazing that I still get get to do my research. I love that as well. Such an amazing life you've led since your transplant. But something else that's very unique about this interview we're doing right now is that you are very pregnant. (laughs) I am. I am. I'm 34 weeks pregnant, which is something that I also thought would never happen. I think for a long time I was, when people would talk about kids or ask me about kids, I would always say I didn't want children. And I think that was definitely a protective mechanism because I wanted the choice to not have children, not have that choice taken away from me, if you know what I mean. Because I'm led to believe that having children have, after having a, uh, an organ transplant is something that can be quite difficult and for a lot of people it's just not on the cards anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, and to be honest, I can't tell you about other organs, but I can tell you that in the past 10 years in Australia there have been 180 babies born to transplant recipients. So about 18 babies a year are born to, to people who've had kidney transplants in particular. Um, so it is a rare occurrence, but, um, you know, it was, it was actually a really hard decision to make because my first priority for my whole life has always been my own health. And so, you know, where uh, transplant recipients are on immunosuppression medication and the medication that I was on meant that I couldn't fall pregnant. So I had to change my drugs in order to be able to fall pregnant, be stable on those drugs for three months and then be able to start trying to have a baby. So that I felt I had to get past, I guess, the selfishness of saying I want a baby more and it's okay to it's okay to want my health and a baby. You know what I mean? So we were actually, me and my partner were really torn about whether or not to have a baby and it was actually something my nephrologist said to me. They said... Um, you know, your dad gave you your kidney so that you could live your life the way that you wanted. And if having a baby is a part of the way that you want to live your life, well, isn't that just a beautiful thing? After that conversation, I was like, okay, yeah, I think I'm ready. I think, you know, she's right. It goes back to what I said before, having a transplant's life enabling, not life limiting. And so uh, it wasn't too long after that conversation that me and my partner made the decision to to change change my medication, and then start start trying for a baby. So they change your medication. Now, as this medication isn't the stuff you're normally on, I imagine it's not the best or the plan A that doctors would give you. So I imagine they don't want you on these indefinitely. Is there somewhat of a ticking clock involved here? Yeah, yeah, I definitely felt I definitely felt that. So my, the, the goal was um, to change your drugs and be pregnant as soon as possible. <laughs> So I felt a little bit of pressure <laughs> with that. Um, but my partner and I got went to fertility doctors before I changed my medication and made sure that everything was okay, that from, you know, 
a biological point of view, there was no reason to think that we couldn't have children. And that was important to me because I didn't want to go through all this change and then find out later on that there was something biological wrong. But we're all okay. Yeah, so the doctors, I had it in the back of my head every month, you know, oh, I hope this is the month because I need to be on my, I need, you know, need to switch back to my old medication as quickly as possible. And so then three months go by and then six months go by and then 12 months go by and nothing's happening. So again, we got referred to fertility doctors just to double check that everything was still okay. I'm also a bit older, I guess, to be having a baby. Um, Doctors, any doctor will say, you know, have a baby before you're 30. (laughs) And that was my advice when I got my transplant at 25. They said, if you want a baby, have it before you're 30. And that came and went. (laughs) So anyway, you know, life happens and it's about things happening in the right order and finding the right person and things like that. So we went and got tested a second time and one of my results came back on the low side indicating that I might not have as much time to try indefinitely to fall pregnant because my it was my egg egg count. Apparently my egg count was low. And this was in uh, February in 2020, so right before COVID was about to hit. And then COVID hit and we, we got a call from the fertility clinic saying, look, all clinics are closing my advice to you would now be to go and get IVF. And that was a huge shock because me and my partner hadn't even spoken about if IVF was something that we wanted to do or how important, you know, having a kid was a, was to us and if, you know, like I said, if IVF was, was going to be an option. And we were devastated. We thought that that was it. We thought, well, because all IVF clinics were closing because of COVID as well. And so we really thought that our journey to have a kid was over and we spoke about how much longer we were going to try to have a baby naturally before we switched my drugs back. And and once we switched my drugs back, um, that was basically it. That was the last. Our our window was definitely going to be closed to having a baby. I think after we got over the shock of that, and just thought, oh, well, there's nothing that we can do, you know, let's just keep trying and we'll see how it goes. I think it was about three weeks later we fell pregnant. So it was um, really shocking to think that, you know, our journey was over. Oh, well, let's just give it one or two more months and then we fell pregnant. So, With everything you've overcome, then COVID being one of the factors as to whether or not you could have children for the rest of your life must have been excruciating. But how's pregnancy been for you up to this point? Good, actually. I haven't had any morning sickness. I haven't had any stupid cravings. <laughs> I got tired a lot, um, but I think that's normal. Like I haven't had any anything that would indicate that I'm, you know, that anything's going wrong or that I'm any different from a normal pregnancy because I've had a transplant. And the, the only thing is it was advised to us to go through an obstetrician because I'm classed as high risk because of my transplant. And so my obstetrician and my nephrologist are working really close with each other, which is great. We feel like we've got a really supportive team around us to help deliver a healthy baby. 
So the only thing that's changed is my the number of uh, nephrology appointments I have to attend has gone up because they want to keep a close eye on the kidney and, and also all my medication levels. And, yeah, the obstetrician uh, appointments are more regular than a non-transplant recipient, but that's all really. Otherwise, everything's been going swimmingly. It's been going really good. Brooke, that makes me so happy to hear. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> your story with us. I mean, it's one that spans your entire life, and I can't wait to hear the news that you've given birth to a healthy baby. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. No, thank you for having me on. What a unique story. Everything Brooke's been through, and her dad, without any hesitation or thoughts of his own well-being, just automatically volunteering his kidney for his daughter. Legends the both of them. Australia needs more legends like this. So if you were touched by Brooke's story, I want you to do two things. Go to donatelife.gov.au and sign up to become an organ donor. And also talk to your family about your wishes. If you enjoyed the podcast, then give it a review or a rating. Maybe give it a share on your social media. I hope it swayed you to sign up to become an organ donor. If you did sign up after hearing this, or you've just got any questions or comments about the podcast, drop me a line. Donatelifepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Next week, my guest will be Michelle Skinner. Michelle works for Donate Life as the Donor Family Support Coordinator. She looks after the families whose loved ones have passed away and donated their organs. An amazing woman who does a very tough job. I hope you'll join me and I hope you'll make the decision to Donate Life.